So I want to ask you a question this morning. And the basic question is this. Sorry. Have it. Apologize for that. Here's the basic question. Is it possible in this crazy season we're living in, and these crazy times we're living in, is it possible to do more than just hang on? You know, you know the feeling, don't you? How are you doing? I'm surviving. Have you said it? Right? In fact, I think everybody has said it over the last 18 months, right? Hey, how are you doing? I, I'm, I'm surviving, or I'm just surviving. In fact, a lot of us feel like we're hanging on or maybe just barely hanging on. Is it possible to do more than just hang on? Now, let me be clear. I am in no way beating us up or um, telling us that you have to be okay, right? That it's okay to not be okay. It's, it's, it's okay to struggle. It's okay uh, for emotions to really wrestle through the pandemic with all we're going through. That's okay. But as the pandemic has become increasingly difficult, right, thinking that we were out of it in June, moving in a good direction, and cases looked so much better, and then things came roaring back, I just hear a lot of folks saying, hey, there's so much chaos, there's so much disruption, disruption in the government, disruption in business, disruption in the workplace, disruption in paychecks, that it's so easy for people to feel like, hey, how are you doing? And just say, hey, I'm just barely hanging on. Is it possible to do more than just hang on? Now, add to that that a lot of Christians, you know many who would be in this boat, would look around at the world around us and just Christians find themselves increasingly frustrated. If you take the politics out of it, and at least for this moment, please do, a lot of Christians still have the feeling, this is not about who serves in the White House, this is much broader. A lot of Christians have a feeling that our culture is increasingly antagonistic to our values, whether it's our view on biblical sexual ethics or our view on the Bible itself as, as as sort of a unifying, authoritative document to guide our behavior, or whether it's our view on Jesus Christ and who he is, Christians find that their values are increasingly feeling out of place. And so if you ask a lot of Christians how they're doing, they'll say that they're holding on, hanging on. But is it possible to do more when the culture around us is so different, even, even antagonistic? Is it possible to do more than just hang on? I think the answer is yes. And to show us that, I want to take us today to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. And we're going to start there today in Daniel 1. And today I'm going to give you a big picture, sort of 30,000 view, foot view of the book of Daniel. We're going to try to see the whole of the book of Daniel today. I'm not going to read it all to you. You don't have to worry about that. I'm not going to keep you that long today. But I do want us to take the flyover of the book of Daniel today, and I want us to see the big picture. And the reason I want us to see the big picture is because I want you to see that, yes, we can thrive 
not just survive. But it's going to take a major shift. It's going to have to take a shift in our mindset, a shift in our perspective, a shift in the story we tell ourselves when we see news, when we read news, when we interpret news. And in the end, essentially, it's going to take a fundamental shift in whose kingdom you're living for. We're starting this new series called Thriving, Not Just Surviving. And again, it's this verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter walk through the book of Daniel. And I'm super excited about it. The story of Daniel takes place about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And yet it has as much to do with the birth of Jesus as the Gospels themselves. Because all of the Old Testament was clear that a Messiah would come, that the Christ would be born. The book of Daniel is specific in its prophecies, its visions. The book of Daniel records the prophecies, the visions, the public ministry of of a man named Daniel, who along with his friends, right, you know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is, this is fascinating to me, and I'm still trying to figure this one out. We know Daniel is Daniel, not his Babylonian name. But the other three guys, somebody tell me their, their Hebrew names real quick. Now, we're going to get to them. They're here. They're, they're in the text. But we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or, or by their veggie tail names, you know, Rakshak and Benny, or whatever those whatever those were. All right, Daniel was a teenager, so, so likely were, were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Teenagers, when they were taping, taken captive in Nebuchadnezzar's first siege of Jerusalem in 605, 605 BC, Daniel was of royal blood, as they likely were as well, and yet they lived in this captive sense, taken as prisoners of war, literally, from their homeland, taken to this foreign land of Babylon, modern-day Iraq, essentially, and they were told to live, made to live, like Babylonians. And they were given the role of serving in the king's court. And yet, Daniel and his friends stood for their faith in a way that honored their God, but didn't disrespect their king. Now, to be true, they were straight to the king when the king was wrong, when the king was off, when the king was prideful, when the king was sinful. So they didn't compromise their values, and they didn't compromise their faith. But if you study their interactions with the kings of their day, and I don't just want to say king, I want to say kings on purpose. In fact, When you picture every picture you've ever had of Daniel in the lion's den, how old was he? 45. (laughs) He would have been an old man by that point because he served king after king after king. And it's King Darius that that story takes place with. He would have been in the kingdom for quite a long time. Daniel was no longer the young man he was when he was taken into captivity. Daniel was now quite an old man at this stage of the journey. Daniel's name, we'll come back to it over 
over the course of time as we go through the series, but his name means God is my judge, which is pretty significant, I think. Daniel was probably 15 when he was carried away to Babylon as a prisoner of war. God gave him the gift of interpreting mysteries and dreams, and he used that to serve kings, but to influence them for the God of Israel. He was a prophet, he was a scribe, he was a governmental leader, and I think he shows us very well what it means to live in a country that isn't your own, and yet be true to a broader kingdom, the kingdom of God, in our sense, the kingdom of Jesus. I think this picture of exile is often maybe for us the best picture of what it means for Christians to live in any human kingdom today. Because we have our loyalties here, and yet increasingly human kingdoms look less and less like the kingdom of God. In fact, Human kingdoms have always looked less and less like the kingdom of God. So I want to take you to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. I want to read these first chapters. We'll be in them again in the next several weeks. In fact, you might be a little tired of Daniel 1 by the time we get through it. I'm not going to fast walk this series. I have no idea how long the series is going to take, but I assume at this point we'll be well past Christmas when we finish the book of Daniel, probably into spring even. It says in Daniel 1.1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Which if you'll just slow down and read those words again. You'll be a little shaken. The Lord delivered. The whole time, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's the guy in control. But then again, kings of the earth, the kings and queens of the earth, always think they're the ones in control. And yet God was moving, doing what God wanted. And and, and to understand the book of Daniel, you have to understand that the people of God had been rebelling against God for some time. And God, through other prophets, had said, this is what's going to happen. So this is fulfilled prophecy at this point, that God is delivering the king of Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them, the treasure, in the house of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And Ashpenaz was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians." And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Three years. Often we're ready for, humanly speaking, to enter into the king's service. We think we're ready right away. 
right? We think we're ready to jump into the next phase of the career, the next step in our influence in the world. We often think that we're ready to do it instantaneously. It took them training. Why wouldn't it take us training, right? It's a good reminder for those of us still in the educational part of our years. And by the way, we're all still in the educational part of our years to always be learning and growing. Among those chosen, right, from the royal blood, these, these, these young men without defect, the handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel. Now here's the free friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach and Benny, if you're keeping score. And the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And suffice it for now to say that the reason their names were changed is because the goal of the Babylonians was to take these young men and make them thoroughly Babylonian. And so they were given Babylonian names, and all of those names have to do with the worship of Babylonian gods. I told us months ago that I think the best picture in the Bible of what it looks like to live in Christian, as Christians in an increasingly hostile or antagonistic culture is to look at a time period in the Bible called exile. That's what this is. These Hebrew young men, along with tons of other Hebrews, were taken from their homeland back to Babylon where they lived in exile. They were in a land not exactly their home. In fact, not at all their home. They were taken as prisoners of war. Daniel again was taken probably somewhere between the age of 13 and 15, where eventually Daniel would become the second most powerful man in the world, serving under the king of Babylon. It kind of reminds me of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, where Joseph is sold into slavery and starts as a servant, as a slave, but, but ends up earning respect and more and more and more over time till he is second in command, uh, second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. What the book of Daniel does is really interesting. The book of Daniel almost takes the earth and its history and pulls back like you could pull back the universe like a curtain and just pulls open the curtain of history to show you the view of Daniel's time from God's perspective. Like the curtains of history are peeled back and you see not only Daniel's time, but all that is to come over that 600 years and even in a sense to the end of time a pulling back of the curtain to be able to witness God's perspective on the chaos of human life. It's a behind-the-scenes look at what is going on in heaven while what's going on in earth is utter chaos. Again, if you were young and Hebrew and you were taken, in this case, to a land not your own, you would feel utterly shaken like the world had changed entirely, unfairly. And you would probably be angry at a lot of things, even angry at God for allowing such a thing. 
And yet the book of Daniel shows us about God's reign and God's activity and God's sovereignty. And Daniel reminds us over and over and over that God is in control of rulers who think that they are in control. There is great hope that comes from that if we'll just see it for what it is. Not that God makes every decision that every ruler makes. Or that God operates rulers as though they are robots. But ultimately, God is sovereign over the nations, and he uses the circumstances of the nations to accomplish his purposes. And I often think we miss that today. I mean, how often are you looking at the pandemic through the lens of what God is doing? Because it's super easy on social media to get caught up on human perspectives. But what about God's? Where is God in all of this? I would remind us that the New Testament tells us that God has put Jesus as the head over everything for his church. God is doing something. And in this sense, the book of Daniel shows us in these visions of the nations to come, not just what happened, but what always happens in humanity. The book of Daniel shows us what happens when kings and kingdoms live in conflict over power and glory and finances and resources. What always happens when rulers live in pride rather than serve in humility. What always happens when we as believers live in pride rather than live in humility. And what always happens when as humans we live for our own best interests rather, in fact, hardly ever considering the needs of others. There's this great resource online called The Bible Project. They put together various videos on the Bible. They put together a summary of the book of Daniel. In fact, they put together video summaries of every book of the Bible. They're, they're totally worth reading and, and checking out when, you, um, when you're exploring a book of the Bible that is new for you. And for that matter, if you've been around the Bible for like centuries, they're still good for you. I want to show you their overview. It's going to take a few minutes, but I want to show you their overview of the book of Daniel this morning. We got that video, guys? The book of Daniel. The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. 
Chapter one introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and that puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refuse to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted. They're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death, and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a God, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts. And like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast identified as a really evil empire. And it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of of man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. 
But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is the image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John, the visionary who wrote the Revelation, could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings and their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. It's pretty good, isn't it?
I mean, seriously, every book of the Bible has a video that gives you a summary just like that. And uh, the Bible Project is what that is called. Just Google it. You can find the videos pretty easily, uh, Vimeo, various other places, so, and on their website. So, so what should we learn from the book of Daniel? If we're doing a flyover and we're taking a look at the book of Daniel at 30,000 feet, what is it we're really supposed to see? What do I want us to walk away with? I have, for me, three big takeaways. Number one, this would echo what we just saw in the video. Pride is a far bigger problem than we understand. It's a far bigger problem than we think. That humans become beasts when filled with self and pride. It's not enough to say kings become beasts when filled with self and pride. We can all pull back, look at the realm of politics, and see that play out, can't you? Again, I don't, I'm not, it's not right versus left. It's more like right versus wrong, but not the same right in this case. That all politicians tend to play into this line of thinking where pride and power become all-consuming. Would you see that to be true in the world? Right or left, happens on both sides. Humans become beasts. It's not enough to think that about kings and kingdoms. I have to begin to think about myself. We become beasts when filled with self and pride. So takeaway one is going to remind us of the big problem in the world. And I'm going to talk about this pride issue just a little more. The second takeaway is going to remind us why there's hope in this world of chaos. And our third takeaway is going to show us a way forward, how to live in a culture that often rejects our faith. I don't have time to go into all of it or read all of it, but I did put in your notes for you just a few things here in Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. You would remember from the video that Daniel 4 and 5 give us these things that happen to these two kings, right? To Nebuchadnezzar and to uh, Belteshazzar. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. So what's going on here, Belshazzar, and what, who's really, it says a son, but he's really a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to have to get into that when we get to Daniel 5. But when you read it, what you find is that Daniel 4 reflects to us that Nebuchadnezzar repents of his pride. But what happens to Daniel, or not to Daniel, to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, is he literally becomes a beast. That, that, that the prophecy the vision about him is that he will eat like a beast from the things of the ground, that, that he will, you know, be down on the ground living and eating like a beast. And by the end of the chapter, he literally does, and he repents. And I just want to read a little bit of this to you. Daniel 4, it says, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty. And even as these words were on his lips, a voice from heaven came and said, this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people, and you will live, in the wild, live with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like the ox. And seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth." and that he gives to them anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. He literally becomes beastly. It sort of reminds me, I don't know, everybody talks about movies that freaked you out or shows that freaked you out when you were a kid. 
right? And for most people, that was like, you know, the Wizard of Oz or something like that. But for me, I don't know why, but it was Pinocchio, <laughs> right? Because the whole donkey thing and the, you know, the ears and the, the, like, there's just something about humans becoming beasts that's kind of freaky. These days, we turn it into movies and we make it a, you know, a good thing somehow. Daniel 5, the same thing happens to Belshazzar, the son or really the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, but he doesn't repent and he is not restored. In fact, he dies because of his pride. It reminds me greatly of Proverbs 16, 18, right? That pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. This is the theme of Daniel 4 and 5 and much of the book of Daniel, that we become beasts in our pride. Second takeaway should give us hope. It's about kings and kingdoms, and it's basically this, that kings and kingdoms come and go. They just do. But there's a king coming whose kingdom is here to stay. There should be great hope in that. Now, I say it as though it's future tense. There's a king coming whose kingdom is here to stay because Daniel is written 600 years before the time of Jesus, and he is prophesying that there is a king coming whose kingdom will never end. And that king did come, and Daniel actually gives us not dates like, like okay, it's on this day, write it down, 0 BC, 0 AD, right? They didn't keep time the way we do at that point. And, but if you get, dig into the details of the prophecies, giving us the time of the birth of Jesus, it's literally there. And by the time Christmas comes around, we're going to discover some cool things that come out of this. What's amazing to me is that Daniel is telling us that this king who's coming will outlast all other kings. And that his kingdom will outlast all other kingdoms. And that you and I as believers in God, specifically believers in Jesus, need to understand whose kingdom we're finding our hope in. And whose kingdom we're living for. Every four years, I feel like I have the same conversation with us as a church. It is, it is fun to pastor a church for a long period of time. But you feel like you often find yourself repeating yourself. Every four years, we do this thing in American life where we elect a new president, right? And every four years, I'm talking to us about the need to not put your hope in human kingdoms. Because a percentage of the church is always devastated. When their side wins or loses or whatever, however it plays out, some percentage of people are just devastated. I'm kind of like, okay, you get up, you pray for the new president, and you realize that I don't serve the president of the United States. I serve the king of kings. Now, that's not to say we want to be bad citizens. Daniel teaches us much about how to be good citizens in exile, if you will. But I just want to note for you, I put a bunch of verses in your, in your notes here. Daniel 1, Daniel 5, 1, Daniel 5, 30, Daniel 6, 28, Daniel 10, 1. Daniel serves a succession of kings, not just Nebuchadnezzar, but his son and then grandson, Belshazzar. And then after Belshazzar, there's Darius. And then after Darius, there's Cyrus the Persian. And some question about whether those are the same guy, and we'll have to get into all of that. But the reality is, when you look at the historical part of it, that he had been a part of the royal family in Judah with Jehoiachin, 
who was king. Was it Jehoiakim? I forget. Eh, where's my Daniel 1 notes? Jehoiakim. There's Jehoi- Jehoiachim, Jehoiakim. You gotta, don't get them confused. I often do. So Daniel 1 is telling us that he served, in a sense, the king of Judah. And then from there, Nebuchadnezzar. And then after Nebuchadnezzar, there was a series of kings before we get to Belshazzar. And what you find over time is that Daniel may have served as many as seven or even nine potential kings in three different kingdoms. And not all of those kings interacted well with Daniel. But when they did, Daniel was able to influence them for the kingdom of God. In fact, the words kingdom and kingdom of God show up more in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament than any other book of the Old Testament. And one of the central prophecies of the book takes place in Daniel 2, verse 44. I love this. It says, in the time of those kings, this is the great vision of the big statue made out of different elements. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. And this is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future, and the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. I would suggest to us that the rock that breaks all kingdoms is the king of kings himself, that it's giving us a picture of Jesus as the ultimate rock. In fact, Jesus shows up over and over and over, right? That we get these glimpses. The theologians will call them theophanies, or more specifically Christophanies, where we see Christ before Christ was born. In Daniel 3, he's the, he's the one who looks, he's the fourth man in the fiery furnace, right? The one who looks like a son of God. Or as it says there, a son of the gods. In Daniel 7, where, where literally the curtains are peeled back and he sees the throne of God, he is the son of man. And I would remind you that one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself Jesus didn't walk around going, the Son of God says, the Son of God says, the Son of God says. Later, we call him, and the Bible calls him the Son of God, but Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. In this sense, Daniel gives us not only a 30,000-foot view of of, of sort of history, but a 300,000-foot view of, of all of time. As the book of Daniel pulls back the curtain of history, and it's one of the primary reasons God had led me here. In fact, I had intended to do a different series for us this fall, not that I had it all written, but I had sort of the idea of it and the direction of it mapped out. And for whatever reason, God just interrupted that and said, let's go to the book of Daniel. And I think it reminds me that we spend a lot of our disappointment in this world on kings and kingdoms and politics and what happens in this world. And we put our hope in winning politically and whether our guy or gal or whoever it is is put in office. And I don't at all mean that Christians shouldn't vote or shouldn't be involved in politics because I believe we should. Like Daniel, we should be a good influence in the kingdoms of humans. We should be there to represent God's perspective. But I do believe that if our focus is on the kingdoms of the world, our hope will always fall short. 
that if our hope is rooted in the powers of getting what we want in politics, then our hope is in the wrong place, that we should largely stop putting hope in human kingdoms because they never have saved us and they never ever will. There is only one king and only one kingdom that provides salvation, and it's not a kingdom of this world. It is what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven. Again, go to the teaching of Jesus and think about how often he says the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he goes on to tell a story. There is so much connection between the teaching of Jesus and the book of Daniel. And what Daniel is telling us is that there is a kingdom coming that will never end because it has behind it a God who sits on a throne. And when we pull back the curtain of history, this is the perspective we see. Does suffering happen in this world? Absolutely it does. Do kings and kingdoms, humanly speaking, get filled with pride? And does that breed destruction? Sure. But none of that stops God from being God. What's interesting and through all of this, all the twists and turns of Daniel's life is how he experiences Jesus himself before Jesus was born. But I want to go just a little further before we move on from kings and kingdoms. It's not enough to critique the kings of this world and the queens of this world. We all put our hope in our own little human kingdoms, not just political kingdoms. We put our faith and hope in the kingdom we control. You know, our families, our businesses, our workplaces, our careers, our education circles. And again, sin and pride can often enter this picture, and we end up disappointed in these little kingdoms. But this should not surprise us. Because we're asking those little kingdoms, again, our family circles, our businesses, our workplaces, our education circles, we're often asking those things to provide a fulfillment that they never could because the ultimate fulfillment comes through the kingdom of heaven. And again, that's not to say we shouldn't use our influence in those places for good. It's not to say that we shouldn't serve in those ways. It's not to say that Christians shouldn't serve in every level of government or in law enforcement or in, I mean, shoot, you know as well as I do, we're honoring those folks right now who do such a thing, right? In fact, in, in our thank you campaign, we're not just saying thank you to Christians who serve in those capacities. We're saying thank you to anyone who serves in those capacities, but we are hoping to have a kingdom of God influence by doing so. Does this make sense? So what Daniel is doing and what Jesus does is they show us a king who will never fail, a king whose kingdom will not disappoint. But the ways of his kingdom are different than the ways of the kingdoms of this world. I think this explains why so many of us have found the pandemic to be so disruptive because it has shaken our little human kingdoms and our big ones. And there's a temptation when that happens to dig into our human kingdoms and go to battle against one another as though winning some battle over human realities is going to make us feel better. The enemy wins in that scenario, but as humans, we never do. So how do we as Christians live and influence others in these human kingdoms 
that are more characterized by pride and sin than anything else. How are we supposed to be an influence? And that leads me to the third takeaway. That hatred and rage harden hearts to the king of kings, but love and respect will open them. Hatred and rage will always harden hearts. Study the book of Daniel. Look deeply into the eyes of this young man and eventually this old man and ask yourself, is he filled with hate and rage for the people who took him into captivity? Could have been. Humanly speaking, he should have been. But he was not. In fact, in that sense, I don't want to make Daniel into Jesus himself, but I do think Daniel probably gives us a better picture of what it, lives, what it looks like to live with kingdom values than almost anybody else in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, we hold up hero after hero after hero, and we find out that hero after hero after hero is sinful. And Daniel is one of the few people that I can't tell you what Daniel's big downfall is. But I can with David, I can with Solomon. In fact, I can with every human king that served the kingdom of Israel. There are a few prophets who, I mean, even Abraham himself, Father Abraham had many sons, right? Right? Abraham himself is filled with great pride and sin because that's who we are as humans. So, how does Daniel influence the kings around him? Daniel 1.8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. We'll dig into why that was, and, and it's, it's not just about food and wine. We'll have to get into that. But he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Christians on Facebook these days want to give the royal wave with only one finger to the government. Do you know the finger I'm talking about? I'm seeing Christians do it right and left, and there's nothing God-honoring about it. Daniel asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And you might remember the story, right? They served up a little test, and they were going to test to see. And then after the test, Daniel was promoted, if you will. Daniel showed respect, and he showed love. And does that mean that he did everything they wanted? Not at all. I would suggest to you Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that they served the king, but they showed respect and love as they did so. Daniel 4, Daniel 6, you see over and over and over again that these rulers Daniel influenced, that, that Daniel was able to influence them towards his God. So much so that two of these rulers end up giving praise to the God of Daniel, as they call him, the God of Israel, the God of Judah, they end up openly giving praise to the God of Daniel. Daniel 4, Daniel 6. I mean, it's, 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 it's nothing short of miraculous. And yet, if you study Daniel, he is full of humility, he is full of mercy, he is full of grace, he is full of kindness, he is full of joy, he is full of peace. But if you think about it, it's because Daniel's telling us about a king who's coming, a king whose kingdom will never end, and his way is not the way of the world. It's not a way of pride. It is not a way of hatred. It is not a way of self. 
That king who's coming is a king who would serve in love and mercy and grace and faithfulness, but also forgiveness. Jesus' kingdom has endured for 2,000 years, and it will endure forever, but it wasn't established on winning the kingdom in the ways of the world. Does this make sense? It was established with what we later call the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness. And Did Jesus get angry? Of course he did. It's in the story. You can read it multiple times. Jesus got angry, but he, was he characterized by that anger? Was he driven by that anger? No, rather, he was driven by service and sacrifice, which just takes me to this main thing I want us to get, that I want us to be changed by the book of Daniel. And it gives us both a warning and a promise. And if we live by it, our lives and even the kingdoms around us could be changed forever. A warning and a promise. Here it is. The one thing. When I exalt myself, God will humble me. And when I humble myself, Jesus will lift me up. When I exalt myself, God will humble me. Look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Look at the story of Belshazzar. God humbles them. And when I humble myself, like Daniel, like Rack, Shack, and Benny. Jesus lifts them up. It's my choice, and it's a choice I must learn to make every literal day of my life. A life of humility, a life of sacrifice, a life of surrender. Jesus, of course, said this in these words, right? He who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14 verse 11, Luke 18, verse 14. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Old Testament told it to us, right? Pride goes before a destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, that God mocks proud mockers, shows favor to the humble and oppressed. This is a theme of truly the entire sense of Scripture that we are called to live And servanthood, because we serve a king who laid down his life in love. And as we often say around here at Harvest, most of us know that the secret to life is love. But what most of us don't know is that the secret to love is humility. There's a lot that we're going to see in the book of Daniel. But in the end, I think we walk away with what that video said was hope. Hope that motivates faithfulness. Is that what you need? You want to pray it? All right, we always end our services with two prayers. The first, a prayer of salvation. If you need salvation today, you can receive Jesus. And the second, a prayer of application, a prayer of discipleship. If you need Jesus today, it's possible because he came and sacrificed himself. He lived in humility. He lived in sacrifice and servanthood. And we see that no better other place in Scripture than the cross. And he laid down his life and gave his life 
so that I could be forgiven and have God's mercy and I could become a child of God and you can too. You just ask like this, would you like to? Online, would you like to? Right here, right now, just say it to God. Say, God, I want to be yours. And pray with me just like this. Dear Jesus, please forgive my pride and my destructiveness. Jesus, please take over my life. Please forgive my sin. And please be my king. Help me to live for you and your kingdom. Jesus, I can't imagine all that you've done for me. But I put my faith in you and the fact that you laid down your life for me. So take over my life, be my king, and make me a part of your kingdom. In fact, mold me in the ways of your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If that's you and you prayed that prayer with me for the first time, maybe you'd be bold enough to let me know. You can tell me on the digital communication card online. You can tell me on the written communication card. You can find me after service. You can email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N at harvestchurcheugene.com. You can tell somebody who came with you, but tell someone. It's so important. A lot of you prayed that prayer or a similar one years, maybe decades ago, and you've seen lots of kings come and go, haven't you? I mean, we don't have kings in America, uh, but they do around the world, and you see lots of them come and go in history, and yet there's a king who's come, whose kingdom is here to stay. There's great hope there. Would you pray this prayer of application with me? Dear Jesus, Help me to see the chaos of our world from your perspective. And remind me that you are in charge and that nothing will ever knock you off your throne. Jesus, I confess that my pride brings destruction. And I confess that I often get too caught up in our political kingdoms and I lose perspective of your kingdom. And I thank you that you will outlast. And in the end, you will win. So help me to operate in hope and humility rather than hatred and rage. I humble myself. And I ask that you help me to follow you always. In Jesus' name. Amen. I hope that you're seeing the king give you that hope.